There's so many things happening that we need to be people of prayer. We need to go to the Lord in prayer. And, it, you know, we look at, like I said, one of the ways you can uh, pray, one of the things that I like to do is use the Lord's Prayer. It's amazing to me, you know, the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's amazing to me how many people, I do a lot of funerals, and how many people, uh, I, I like to, like, include that as part of the funeral service. And there are a lot of people who, I know they're not, like, church people, but they know that. You know, they memorized it when they were kids or at the Catholic Church or something. And, like, half of the group, um, they're not reading. A lot of them know at least parts of that prayer. And so when I have trouble praying, I sometimes go to the Lord's Prayer, and I just pray through that scripture. I pray through the Lord's Prayer. And it's a prayer, really, that, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. So really, calling it the Lord's Prayer is kind of a misnomer, right? It should be called the Disciples' Prayer. You know, we really, we know that the Lord Jesus prayed a lot. We know he went to his Father regularly in prayers. Sometimes, it says in the Gospel account, sometimes that he, he went, got up early in the morning and went off to pray by himself. Sometimes it says he prayed all night long. We don't know what Jesus said during those times when he met with his father in those intimate times. But you know what? We do get a glimpse of the heart of the son towards the father in, in one of his prayers. It's the longest recorded prayer. It's in, in John chapter 17. So the, John chapter 17 should be called the real Lord's Prayer. Because this is a prayer that it's been called the greatest prayer that was ever uttered on the face of the earth and the greatest prayer recorded in Scripture. This prayer is personal and, and it's powerful and, and it's, it's pastoral as well. In November 24th, 1572, John Knox, the Scottish Protestant reformer, as he lay on his dying deathbed, he said to his wife Margaret, Go, read to me where I cast my first anchor. And Margaret immediately knew what to do. She went to her Bible, opened up John 17, and read her husband those first three verses. Margaret knew that this text was where Knox first met Christ as his Savior, and so this text became John Knox's first and last anchor. And it's recorded that he went into eternity with her reading this prayer to him. So take a look at your Bibles in John chapter 17, if you haven't opened them up already, and you will see here, at least in the ESV, the editors have put a title on there, and it says, The High Priestly Prayer. Now, it might be a little confusing here if you don't know the background from the book of Exodus. Like, why? I actually wondered that before. Why did it say the High Priestly Prayer in, in this version of Scripture here? Why is that head? Why did the editors put that heading there? Well, the office of high priest was established by God. It was his instructions for worship that he gave to, uh, on Mount Sinai to the people through Moses that Aaron and his descendants, were, they were chosen to be priests. They were the ones who were going to be interceding for Israel before God. And so one priest was selected as the high priest, and this one priest out of the group of priests was going to go into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, where the presence of God dwelt, and he was only going to go once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice that would temporarily cover the sins of the people. But before he was to go in there, in Exodus uh, 38 and 39, before he was to go into there, he would have to 
ritually cleanse himself, make sure that he was clean and ready to go. And it took several days of, of preparation. And then he would go, um, and then he would uh, pray or make clean all the other priests that were assisting him. And then he could go into the Holy of Holies and, and make atonement for all of the people. So what we see in John chapter 17 is the parallel or kind of the ultimate fulfillment of the sacrifice here. When Jesus came, he offered his life as the ultimate sacrifice that would cover the sins of the people completely, that would save people from their sins. So Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and his intercession here in John chapter 17 is this wonderful, multi-layered example here of his love. So first of all, he prays for himself in the first five verses. Then he prays for his disciples in the second section. And then he prays for all people. He prays for us in the last section. So today, I want to look at this, the Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer is what I call it, in three parts. And today, we're going to look at just part one, at the first few verses here, as Jesus focuses his prayer on himself. And we see here that Jesus prays for himself to be glorified in the saving of sinners so that the Father is glorified. So John chapter 17, this is kind of the link between uh, Jesus' upper room farewell discourse in chapters 14 through 16 and his John chapter 18 where he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because it says there in verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these things. So Jesus has been teaching, like I said, this is the farewell discourse is the largest group of teaching Jesus gave his disciples somewhere between the upper room, Last Supper, and the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe it was in the upper room, maybe it was on the way. But he, he says when he's done teaching these things, that big section of teaching, now he's done with those things. And um, the disciples, though, even though he's done talking to them, he starts talking to his father, but the disciples are listening. So part of this is instructive, right? He's, the disciples are listening, and so we can assume that Jesus... Like I said, this is the prayer that we can hear what he's saying to the Father. So he's saying this out loud for their benefit, for our benefit. You know, oftentimes Jesus went alone to pray, but here he's praying in public. And we see what Jesus does is he lifts up his eyes to heaven in prayer, which was the common way that Jewish people would pray publicly, lifting up their hands, lifting up their eyes to heaven in prayer. And it reminds us that there is no right way or wrong way you can, you know, your posture whenever you're praying. You can pray sitting, kneeling, lying face down on the ground while you're driving or while you're standing up. God will hear you regardless of your physical posture. And you don't have to close your eyes when you pray. In fact, if you're driving, I would tell you not to close your eyes unless you have a lot of faith. Closing your eyes, though, can be helpful. It can help minimize distractions. You know, we just started, like, I, I started making my boys close their eyes when they pray because I realized whenever we're praying around the dinner table, they try to make each other laugh, you know? So I'm like, close your eyes. Be respectful. <laughs> and I think that's why we tend to close our eyes when we pray as adults because we have that little voice in our head of our, you know, grandma or our parents being like, close your eyes, you know what I mean? That's why we do it. So we tell them, close your eyes, I'm praying. Otherwise, you're going to be making each other, make faces at each other where you should be praying along with the person who's leading in prayer. So Jesus begins his prayer with the word Father. It's how he's taught his disciples to pray. Pray, our Father. And he uses the title Father six times 
in his prayer. Later on, he adds holy father and righteous father to that second and third parts of his prayer. And it shows the intimacy that the son has with his father in heaven. He also begins by saying, the hour has come. And John uh, writes that Jesus uses that terminology a lot when he says the hour has come. Before John chapter 12, when people always you know, wanted to make Jesus do something he didn't want to do, he would say, my hour has not yet come. So all up until John 12, he would say, my hour has not come. When, they, when people tried to force their will on God, he would pump the brakes right, and say, not yet. It's not time. But now, you know, starting in John chapter 12, when Jesus actually goes into Jerusalem, that's when his language changes, and he says, my hour has arrived. And now he says, now it's less than 24 hours away from when he goes to the cross. And he says, the time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, indicating that he is about to die soon. Very shortly, he's going to be arrested and put on trial, beaten, mocked, scourged, and then hung on the cross to die. The world would say that it would be his defeat and Jesus' shame. But in reality, his glory would come through his shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so Jesus' main prayer here, in fact, it's the only petition or request is that he is making in these first five verses, he's praying that he would be glorified through what's about to take place. His prayer was at that moment would bring, bring great glory to himself so that the Son could bring glory to the Father. When we seek glory, we do it at the expense of the glory of God. But when Jesus asked the Father to glorify the Son, it was not at the expense of the Father because the glorification of the Son was equal to the glorification of the Father. When the Son is exalted and honored, then the Father is exalted and honored because the Father and the Son are one. And just so you know, when we talk about the glory of God here and glorifying God, we need to remember that we're referring to a noun and a verb. The glory of God is a noun that means his majesty or his splendor, his display of divine goodness. That's the glory of God. So when we talk about God being glorified, it means it's the appropriate response to his goodness being displayed. So the glory of God is his goodness displayed. And glorifying God is, is celebrating that goodness. Jesus was glorified at the cross because it was the greatest display of the divine goodness of God and the act of obedience in the Son. If you remember from John chapter 1, it says no one has ever seen God, but the glory of God was revealed. It was made manifest in the Son. He made the, the Father was made known in the flesh of the Son. And at the cross, we see God's holiness and his hatred for sin and his refusal to compromise with sin. We see all of that, his love and his justice and the condemnation for sin. We see that at the cross because the Son took the wrath of God, the just punishment for sin on himself. At the cross, we see God's love for us and that, the, that vast cost of redemption. It showed that God loved us so much. You know, with a little kid, you ever say, I, you know, I love you this much. Well, I love you this much. 
You know, I love you this much. I love you this much. And then you give the kid a big hug. I remember seeing that picture that said, you know, God showed us how much he loved us by opening wide his arms on the cross for us. He loved us this much. And so God showed his amazing love to us by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins in our place, dying the death that we deserved. He took your place, he took my place on the cross, showing that there's no limit to God's love. And God's love was on display at the holiness and the justice that collided on Jesus at the cross. And so that's his prayer. And the grounding for that is verse 2. The grounding for his request from verse 1 is in verse 2. He says, since or just as you have given authority to him over all flesh or over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so he's saying this authority, the father gave the son because of this in the same way as this. So I'm asking you to glorify me. And what we see here is kind of an echo from John chapter 10. In fact, by the way, a lot of people look at John 17 and say, like, this is kind of like summarizing all of the book of John here. You know what I mean? Because he's kind of, there's a lot of echoes back to what has already taken place, place in Jesus' life and what he already taught. So in, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He said, the sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He said, my sheep know me and I know my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. And Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. That was all from John chapter 10 when Jesus is saying, you know, I, my sheep know me and I know my sheep and, and no one's going to take them away from me and I'm going to lay down my life. He also says, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up again. So what's about to take place and very short time in Jesus' life is no accident. It's according to the plan that was planned in all of eternity past by the Trinity, and now is taking formation now, is coming to fruition in the next couple of days here. That Jesus was in control, and his desire was to give his life for those over whom he has authority, those whom the Father has given to him. And verse 4 here, it, it kind of goes with verse 2. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, he could be referring to all of the work that he has already done in the life that he's already lived. This is alluded to in John chapter 4, verse 34, where Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus, at the beginning of his life, said, I'm going to accomplish you know, what you called me, what you sent me here to accomplish. And that's, that's what I want to do. That's Daily, that's what I want to do. You see, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. He perfectly kept all of the law of God. Theologians call this the active obedience of the Lord Jesus. In other words, he didn't come just to die on the cross, as if we could say just, right? But it's not like, I've said this before, it's not like he just like appeared on the scene and then went right to the cross, right? He was born as a human being, fully human, truly human being, like a body just like yours or, I, or my body. And yet he was fully human, lived a, a human life, and yet he was totally righteous and holy, never sinning at all. Nothing that he ever said or did or even thought. And he also loved people. It wasn't just that he came and he was, you know, 
lived in solitary, you know, all. But, like, he interacted with people on a regular basis. He loved people. He loved people that were difficult to love. He called his sheep. He preached the good news. He called people to repentance. He called out his sheep. And John, in chapter 5, Jesus said, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so his miracles touched actual human beings' lives. And his miracles testified that he was sent from the Father to accomplish this task, that he truly was God in the flesh. But verse 4 can also, uh, it can also include his passive obedience as well because it can include his suffering and dying, depending on how you look at verse 4 here because he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And the root word for the word accomplished there is is the same word, the same root word as the last word that Jesus said on the cross. It's probably one of my favorite words in all of Scripture because in English it says, it is finished. And in Greek it's one word, tetelestai. It's done, completed, finished. The work that Jesus came to do was accomplished on the cross. So the reason Jesus desired for the father to glorify him at the cross he said is that you have uh, that he has all authority and the purpose he has he hopes to achieve through the father's glorifying him on the cross there is granting eternal life to those whom god has granted eternal life it says in verse um, two and verse three here eternal life why did jesus come to earth why did he die on the cross and rise again to give eternal life to undeserving sinners. Look at John chapter 17, verse 3. This is a really important verse. You should highlight or underline this verse in your Bible. In fact, what a lot of times we tell people to, to you know, if you don't know any scripture, brand new to Christ, John 3, 16, right? Like, that's the one everybody memorizes. When I used to disciple um, kids in Chicago, and I worked in the inner city of Chicago, and some of the young people, I used this Sun Life book, the first verse we memorized was John 17, 3. And so it's funny, I, like, I know that so well, and a lot of the kids I worked with, they didn't have John three sixteen memorized, but they had John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And why is that so important? Because eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is not something that happens after you die. It's something that starts here. That is the fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant that we see from Jeremiah 31, where it says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So what is involved in knowing God? What is involved in gaining a deeper knowledge of him? Well, first of all, knowing Christ involves knowing something about him. We, we live in a world today where we have amazingly great access to scripture and good Christian literature. Never before in the history of mankind have we had such access to scripture. But fewer and fewer people, even Christians, 
have much of an understanding of God. Hosea said in his day that his people were destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We must learn about Christ if we are to know him. But it is more than just knowing about Christ. We need to really know him. There needs to be an intimacy of relationship. Knowing Christ is more than just knowing, uh, knowing him, but it's and knowing about him, but it's actually knowing him. You know, like, because I say, like, somebody might say, hey, you know Mike Tomlin. I'm like, yeah, the, you know, the coach for the Steelers. And somebody's like, you know Mike Tomlin? I'm like, no, I don't know him. Like, know him, I know him. You know what I mean? There's a difference in no, even in English, right? It's like, do you know God? Oh, yeah, I know God. If somebody tells me they know God or they believe in God, I always think of the, in the book of James where it says, Oh, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe in God. So if somebody tells me they believe in God, that doesn't really mean much to me, honestly. I don't really quote James to them, but sometimes I'll be like, oh, you go, even the demons believe in God. Good for you. You know what I mean? They'll be like, you call me a demon? <laughs> like, no, but I want you to know him. Not just know about him. I want you to know him. That's the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? There's a big difference between here and here. A big difference. So has it affected your heart? Has knowing Christ affected your life? Has it affected your heart? That's the question should we be asking. And there also should be a growing knowledge as well. That tense actually in verse 3, it suggests an increase in knowledge of Christ to keep on knowing, keep on growing. It's not you know him once and then you're good, but you, are you growing in the Lord? If you're not growing in your knowledge and understanding of Christ, then you don't really know him. That's what it kind of is saying there. When Moses returned from Mount Sinai, his face radiated with the glory of God. And Paul, when he expounded on this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he gave this great application about the situation there. It says, and we all... This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, alluding to what happened with Moses on the mount when Moses met with the Lord. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he says, We all, not just Moses or Elijah, but we all, like Jeremiah said, from the least to the greatest. We all, whether you're weak, you're strong, you're poor, you're rich, doesn't matter. We can reflect God's glory with unveiled faces. God has taken the veil off of our hearts, and now we behold the glory of the Lord. We see him through his word. We see him through the work of the spirit that he is doing. And we are being transformed, it says, from one image into another image, from one degree of glory to another. So we already have every human being created in the image of God has the image and likeness of God, the glory of God. But now we're being transformed in one degree of glory to another. So the more we look at Christ, the more we are changed to look like Christ. Isn't that amazing? That we, with unveiled hearts, are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. See, knowing God will change us. You might not even think that, by the way. You might not see it when you look in the mirror, 
But the more you walk with the Lord, the more that He is working in your life. And that's one of the reasons why we need Christian community so much. So we can grow in the Lord together. So if Jesus' number one priority is bringing glory to the Father, what does that mean for us as believers? What does it mean for us as followers? I think it means that we should want the same thing in our own lives. We want to reflect the glory of God in our own lives as well. That should be a top priority in our life. So that everything that we do has its purpose in the worship of God. So worship is not just something that we do one time Sunday morning, but it's something that our whole lives are living lives of worship. And every single detail of your life is intended to reveal the goodness of God, to celebrate the goodness of God. That is how we glorify God with our lives. And the reason why we live on mission, the reason why we share about God is because we want other people to experience the goodness of God as well. That's what brings glory to God. You know, we've talked um, a little bit, we're going to talk more this year too about evangelism. What does that mean to share my faith? Well, evangelism is sharing with somebody about the goodness of God in your own life. That's revealing the glory of God in your own life. And we do it not because we want to make a convert, but because we want to make worshipers. Because we want to make more worshipers of God because he is worthy of more worship. It's why John Piper wrote a book 20 years ago. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad. And one of his big quotes in there, it says, missions exist because worshipers don't. It's because there's people in other countries and other parts of the world who aren't worshiping the true God, so we want to go tell them about that so that God would receive more worship from more people, so that God would be more glorified. That's what we want to see happen, and our mission is to help people find joy in Jesus. That glorifies Jesus, and that is what he prayed for. And what he prayed for is that the Father would be glorified through that. I mean, what an awesome prayer to actually, like, listen in on what the Son is praying to the Father and how the Son wants to be obedient to the Father, how the Son wants to, you know, follow in the footsteps of what he's going to do. And that should be our prayer as well, that God would be glorified in our own lives, so that God would be made much of, so that more people would hear about Jesus, so more people would join in and praise to him. You know, in conclusion, it must be said here that Jesus' prayer was answered. In Isaiah 42.8, the Lord God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Now look at verse 5. Jesus asked again to be glorified. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, the Son existed with the Father in the glorious heavens before time began. In eternity past, and his life and death on earth, after that was done, it says that he returned to the Father's side, and he will come back again in all of his glory for all the world to see. So I want to end by reading, listen to this from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father in heaven. Let us pray that prayer as well. We ask that you would be glorified, our Father in heaven, our good, good Father. We ask that you would be glorified in our lives and that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another to make us more like your Son, Jesus, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.